Hello, and welcome to the Build a Bridge podcast. I'm Debbie Lynn Molyneux, President and CEO of Bridge Alliance. And today we're going to talk about something called Fierce Civility. It's the title of a book by Joe Weston, and he is advocating for this balance between what is a seeming paradox between fierceness and civility as a way to strengthen our republic and also return or find a path forward towards healthy self-governance. We've invited to join uh, this interview today, David Loverton. Now, David spent uh, time working for a senator on Capitol Hill for many years, as well as running many, many Republican campaigns. He actually acknowledges that he helped create the partisan divide as we know it today and has dedicated the rest of his life to healing the divisions in our country. Uh, you may have heard of him. He was featured in the film, The Reunited States of America, and also took a year-long journey in an RV with his wife and three kids. So welcome to the show, Joe and David. Let's get started. What we thought we would do today is provide some real-life examples for what's happening in Tennessee today from Joe's expertise on fierce civility. So we called David in to really help us look at what's happening in Tennessee and then listen in as David and Joe talk about what are some uh, possibilities using fierce civility to help Tennessee through this time. So David, I'm gonna turn it over to you to uh, lay out what's happening in Tennessee uh, today as we're recording on April 12th, 2023. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a joy to be with you too. And, you know, Tennessee is uh, a picture of things that are happening across the country uh, on both sides of the aisle. Um, and it is rooted in, I think, fear. At the end of the day, there's a lot of fear. Uh, you know, as, as a lot of folks know, we had a, a school shooting that hits really close to home. Uh, a couple of guys that I went to college with, I've known for 20 years. Uh, one of them's the lead pastor of that church. The other one's the associate pastor of that church. The lead pastor lost his daughter in that school shooting. And um, for nothing other than going to school. And, uh, you know, the, it, it's, it's a small town to some degree. When you have a shooting, you don't realize how many people know someone that goes to that school. And so it impacted the state in a unique way. And emotions were very high. Tempers were flaring. People were in pain. And, uh, you know, whether it be, you know, Joe that works at a grocery store or Bob that works in the state legislature, people were hurting and were in pain and you want to do something, you know, you don't want to see this happen again. And we all come from our different backgrounds. How do we address it? And so in our state legislature, some folks in the legislature that feel very passionately about uh, this issue uh, went about it in a way to bring a voice and a passion to this issue in the form of uh, what maybe they would consider themselves supportive of gun control. And, came, you know, there were hundreds and probably thousands of people who came to the Capitol in Nashville and were protesting, supporting of gun control, banning assault rifles, things of that nature. Uh, you know, we're getting to where they were disrupting orderly business in the legislature, if you will. And on the floor, a couple of uh, three different Democrat state House members felt like their voice was not being heard and basically took control over the session, went up to the well of the uh, legislature with and they had their 
microphones cut off if they were beginning to kind of lead some chants. And then they had a bullhorn that they brought out and it kind of shut down the entire legislative process. And the response was uh, very strong and very swift. And the Republican controlled legislature ends up uh, expelling, not, not just kind of disciplining only, but expelling, like removing them from office, just taking their job, which is amazing. I, you know, when I first heard that, I had no idea that a legislature had the power to just remove someone who is democratically elected and they expelled two of the three people. Um, uh, one of the people who was not expelled was a, a, a white woman and the two people that were expelled were young black men. And so there definitely are some racial overtones to this whole situation. But, you know, as I look at it, it's, it's one of those issues that becomes a binary choice that separates people into their warring camps. And that's a really horrible place to begin with. But that's where everyone ran to in, in the wake of this shooting. You know, one thing we can all agree on, folks, is that we want our kids to be safe at school. Let's start there and move on. And, and that's just lacking in our state. And that's lacking across the country. There, there's not someone who's kind of walking in saying, you know, at the end of the day, we have a lot of the same value system. And let's work to see if we do that. One of our great friends, Mark Gerzon, who wrote a book that inspired me greatly, The Reunited States of America, he talked a lot about gun control in the wake of a school violence. He said, while we're still here arguing amongst ourselves, schools are not getting any safer. That's one thing that's a guarantee. And so my, my heart is that our state and us as a country can uh, find a way to work through maybe some of Joe's uh, methods and ideas from his years of years of work to help make schools safer and make this country safer. So there's well, a shortened version of a few weeks of, of drama, but as good as I can. Well, and, and actually almost less than two weeks even, yeah. or just over two weeks. Uh, so Joe, you know, given this kind of layout uh, that, that David's just given us for Tennessee and Nashville specifically, the specific community, where would you start? That's a great, great. Well, first of all, it's great to be here. It's it's and and it's 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 David. It's an honor to to be in dialogue with you, with all of your expertise and who you are, and and I can feel your heart, and it's uh, filled with compassion and wisdom, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Mm. I I say that it's true what I'm saying, but I'm saying that as a way of introducing what the nature of fierce ability is. I'm not an expert on guns. I'm not an ex expert on policy. I'm not an ex certainly not an expert on Tennessee. I've been to Tennessee, but I'm not an expert on Tennessee. What I could say that I have expertise in is finding ways to cut through the confusion, the feelings, the, the, the things that causes resistance in finding win-win solutions. And this is work I've done around the world in conflict zones and with different communities. And the, the fear civility approach basically focuses on an important element of it's not only about the what, it's also about the how. And then I find that we're not finding solutions because we're so fixated on the what. We're just arguing our points and our opinions and our yeah. policies and our viewpoints. We spend millions and millions of dollars on research projects that scientifically and, and technologically and intellectually solve all of our world problems, and they could work. But the reason why they're not working is how we're implementing them. And, and the, fierce, the basis of the fierce ability model deals with two core issues that's keeping us 
um, that has only been exacerbated and has only increased and that is keeping us from solutions. That um, the level of dysregulation that we're all in, our own individual nervous systems based on personal trauma, collective trauma, generational trauma, the trauma that's in the system called the United States of America or any government or the, or the global system is in such a state of anxiety and that when a nervous system goes into a state of high anxiety or chronic stress or trauma, it, anything that appears to be different or new will be perceived as a threat and maybe even a threat to your life. And we are all on some level cycling through this level of dysregulation. And, it's, and because of the pandemic and because of economic challenges and because of climate change and all of the issues that are happening around weather, let's not say climate change, but weather, um, the anxiety is only higher. And we don't have skills to regulate that. Yeah. And in that state of dysregulation, we're in a constant state of fight, flight, freeze, which means we're shutting down our hearts. Yeah. And for me, Debbie Lynn and David, that's the core thing is over the years, we have shut down our hearts. And what that has led to is an a breakdown in civil discourse, breakdown in civic engagement, a breakdown in personal agency, and a breakdown in independent critical thinking. So in essence, the, how I would start that process is to get people in a room where we can find a way to create safer space that people can build some level of safety and trust. And that could take weeks, that could take months, who knows how long that can take. Yeah, so I just wanna say like, David, from your description, what Joe is just describing here about the, um, the nervous system moving into fight or flight at a state of high anxiety, sounds like exactly what happened uh, as as it would because we're all human after a school shooting in the community and the the challenge if you will of the decorum of the state legislature also let the republican legislators react uh, disproportionately shall we say to what was actually happening because we're all in this state of dysregulation so i just wanted to point that out in relationship to to tennessee right now joe and then this idea of like the, the next question that I have is like, okay, so we have this situation in Tennessee and we need to create a, a safe place where people can actually come together to get regulated again. Who has agency or responsibility to do that? I think that's a, that's a valid question. I think the, the, fir the first thing is to identify that um, if you're saying um, it's not necessarily about the, how, uh, the what, but the how, I think the first thing is to say, the, the the lawmakers who were who were uh, on the floor protesting gun reform, what they were protesting is worth listening to. How they approached it may have not been the best. It, in that moment, you could say it wasn't the best choice because it activated such an extreme response. And the response from the lawmakers as well in the same way, their response, they maybe, maybe had a valid point to say, you're really disrupting and it's not appropriate. There has to be some consequences, but the, the consequences they chose is what stagnates, keeps us in the stagnant polarization. If you have an idea of who, who do you invite to that table? Joe, one of my thoughts as you're talking, you know, like maybe uh, as you characterize the, the folks who kind of led the protest is it may not have been the best way to get that message across. It was a message worth listening to, but maybe not the best avenue. 
you know, five years ago, I definitely would have identified more with the person with the gavel in his hand. And I today identify and relate so much more, I think, probably to the folks who have the bullhorn in their hand. I, I really felt like they believe they had no other option than to yell. I think when you feel like your voice and the voice of the people crying out to you are not being heard and are being suppressed, it doesn't leave you with a lot of other options. You just kind of start yelling. And I think, like you said, a lot of us don't have the tools to bring that heart cry out. And sometimes I believe it takes a little bit of nonviolent protest and civil disobedience as an act almost to to stop the presses uh, and to stop this, this fight for order over justice. Uh, as, as Martin Luther King talked about in his letter from the Birmingham jail, it was a, was a thing that just deeply, deeply impacted me in my journey. And I think that's kind of at the heart of what's happening here at Tennessee. When Dr. King wrote this, he said, he said, the greatest stumbling block in the black man's stride towards freedom is not the white citizens council or the Ku Klux Klan, or it's the white moderate who's more devoted to order than justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension to a positive peace, which in the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with the goals you seek, but not the methods of your direct action and things like that. And so I feel like that's so much of what we saw here is people desiring an order over a justice and another group that's desiring justice over order and they clash together. And uh, we so need these camps who, you know, they're, they're not terrible. It, it's good to have order because when you have order in a legislature, everyone in that state house who represents 75,000 people has a chance to share and, and represent their people and their voice. And when one takes the microphone over someone else, it's disempowering someone else's voice. And, and I think, you know, what you bring in your book is really needed. Well, and I, I just want to point, point out here too, that I also wonder about the, uh, because the, the, the Speaker of the House and, uh, and his colleagues were probably responding from a triggered state, not only desiring order, but actually fearful and dysregulated themselves. They didn't have the capacity to hear the pain that was coming from both the protesters and the, and the state legislators who felt ignored or dismissed. And so there's a, a skill level, I think, that we could encourage lawmakers to have to not only regulate themselves, but then be able to keep their hearts open in a way to hear that pain. Yeah, I definitely see it see it the same way. And, and David, I, I, your point is beautifully said. I love the idea of a heart cry. I mean, I. I don't love that someone has a heart cry, but I love that expression and and that, yes, uh, sometimes measures like that are needed. And at the same time, the question is what to be able to have the insight to think what is the what are the consequences going to be? So in essence, to know that this is going to be the consequences. And sometimes that is necessary when the house is burning. I would I would do anything to save people. Right. And that's that idea of the fierceness in the civility. And it's not a static thing, right? Sometimes I got to pull back and be more civil and, and with a certain level of fierceness. And sometimes to meet the person where they are and to meet the needs of the moment, I got to step into that fierceness with a little bit of civility and try not to get just into fierce and not to get into what I call what I call just civility is chronic niceness. And that how much we, mm -hmm. what you're talking about, the, that moderate 
white person, I mean, how much, how many people have suffered because of chronic niceness? So fear civility breaks through that. And that the key to that is um, understanding the, not, not just the intellectual idea, but the visceral idea of meeting people where they are. And that we're all on our own path. You know, that this, the, what I think is important, I bring this up in the book, developing the skill of using William Bridges' model of transition. He was an American thought leader and, and, and organizational development leader. And uh, he talks about transition in three phases. The first phase, letting go of the old, then hovering in the, in the unknown space before you embrace the new. And I think that many activists and many advocates could, could learn, learn from taking some time to think if, you, if people don't change, they transform. Asking someone to change is violent, I think. Mm. People don't change, they transform. And what transforms are their viewpoints, habits, and patterns. So in a sense, if you meet people where they are, you start engaging them currently with their viewpoints, habits, and patterns. People will not transform their viewpoints, habits, and patterns if they do not feel a certain level of safety and trust. So how do you win their trust, meet them where they are, and then you might recognize that 25% of the people you engage are not ready for transformation or not, because the only way we're going to find new solutions, I believe, is if we're all willing to give a little bit of something up, right? You have to let go of the old, hovering in the unknown. Some of us are still stuck and I'm not letting go of the old. Some of us are really panicking in this unknown space, like the liminal of what's coming. And some of us are have embraced the new, but we're rushing other people who haven't gotten there yet. And how do we find a way to just approach each other where we are in that? And then from there, um, invite people into a deeper cooperation. And uh, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. And I think on a personal level, that feels a lot more likely. And I feel like when you get into an institutional level, like a, a, a political office or a political organization, whether it be the United States Senate or the Tennessee General Assembly, whatever that may be, you have these systems in place around you that are all geared towards conflict and a zero-sum battle for power and right. the entire system, and I'm more familiar with it at the federal level, but it, I think it happens a lot in the state house across the state, it rewards you for that conflict, for that battle. There's not a, there's not a reward system to motivate people to do, I think what you've laid out right now in the current model. And so I think that's where we've got to have the tools you're laying out, I think are great in that interpersonal place. And then we also have to think about institutional reform. Is there a path to elected office for people who are not bomb throwers and dividers and fear, fear uh, you know, cultivators, conflict entrepreneurs to quote, uh, I can't yeah. think of her name right now. It's well, you're talking about Amanda Ripley, and I actually have a better name for that, and that's the conflict profiteers. Yeah, yeah. I think that gives them the appropriate title because entrepreneurs too nice for what these yeah. guys are doing. Yeah, <laughs> and as I say you got that, and then you've got you know these systems of the the party structure and committee assignments and seniority. It all is geared towards that and. Um, I've kind of had different seasons in my life where, I, where I've been drawn towards one or the other, but I feel like they, they're both so important is, is 
those tools on an interpersonal level and a, in a group dynamic, and then the tools on an institutional level. But it, you know, that's um, I, I bring that up as I, an offer a, blue, a, a blueprint for lasting peace. Well, I offer a pathway to hope, and I offer a blueprint for lasting peace. And and the basis of that, and this is work I've done around the world in conflict zones and and people who've done what's called transformational uh, leadership for, uh, for, for, for social change. And, and, and it is from the inside out. Personal transformation leads to cultural transformation. All of our great stories are about one person who transforms themselves internally, has some level of faith in something larger than themselves, and from there finds alliances. And that is the, that is the formula. There's, there's, there's two formulas. One is starts with power within. How do you how do you basically um, shift a power over structure by fighting the power over structure? You're just adding more energy to the power over structure. And if you're fighting a bully system by being a bully, you're just becoming you've just been initiated into the bully system in a sense. So it's about being strategic. And, and I talk a lot about the power of the pivot of how to be strategic. As I said, like um, sports training or martial arts training, how do we train ourselves to be in that high level of tension? And it, what going back to the blueprint starts with power within, and then you cultivate relationships with others. And, and you all know this, this is the essence of the work you're doing. But within that, um, I, I truly believe like in, in, in organizational work I do, trying to create cultures of mutual empowerment, the more inclusive the environment is, the more you must have agreed upon systems of accountability to sustain and deepen those relationships so that they, they actually foster more growth. So power within, power with, and then eventually power to, to, to support those. And that in a sense, without even addressing the power over system, it shifts the dynamic. And one of the philosophies in fierce civility is, uh, is finding alliances in surprising places. And you all know this, you have a lot to say about that. So, so in terms of the Tennessee thing, who, who do you invite to that table? There's gonna be percentages on the extreme left if we're talking politics and on the extreme right that would not be, it wouldn't just be constructive to invite them. But there's so many more in the middle and it's not political middle. It's just people who are, who can say, I have my political views, I have my religious views, I have what I believe. And I also believe in the human spirit. I also believe that we can do this in a civil way. I believe that lasting peace could be possible. And those are the people to get at the table. And it's going to be messy. And it's going to be, there's got to be healing and reconciliation that happens. There's got to be, um, you know, letting go of what I, I can say more, but maybe you want to jump in. Uh, yeah, I, let me just get a word in here because um, I started off this part of the conversation by asking, like, who is the convener for uh, hosting the meetings, if you will, where these coalitions and alliances can form? And David, I don't expect you to, to you know, give us a list right now for Tennessee. Um, but I, but I'm also wondering, like, as uh, the people who have the power to convene these types of meetings, they're probably already started. How could we? Uh, how how do we support? that type of work uh, in our own communities. I wish I knew at like the state level, um, you know, in this situation of what's happening, um, you know, they, 
both sides are speaking to and listening to and being shaped by vastly different constituencies. And so they each have kind of different audiences they're speaking to and they're listening to. Um, you know, I don't know if like there's one, there's kind of like this person or this organization who feels like it's this kind of neutral player who's respected and listened to. Like the only thing I feel like might be close is, I can't think of somebody, you know, sometimes I feel like businesses or like, a, you know, because businesses have kind of that economic thing, but they also have a, it, it's a group of, you know, 800 people from wildly diverse backgrounds who are wrestling in a community together, or if it's maybe like a, a local mayor, I don't know, it's a, it's a challenge for me to even hypothetically think of somebody or some entity that could be a force to bring folks together. And I know Joe probably has some ideas from his work nationally and internationally, but I'm at a loss here in, in Tennessee. Let's figure them out. Let's 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 create. You want to create one, David? <laughs> Man, <I've, laughs> it, to create is one thing. To get anybody to show up or sustain is an entirely different thing. I, I, but, but I feel you. But I'd be curious to hear what you think about that, with because I, that gives me hope. I have hope. I have hope in the human spirit. I have hope that you know. I say this in the book. I I have hope because I have to believe that yesterday at least one person on this planet pulled a person out of a burning uh, car and saved their life. I have to believe that one person on this planet today will bring breakfast to a person, to a neighbor who is hungry without them having to ask. And I can go on and on. And I can, and, and I have hope because I believe that there's one person on this planet, at least even just one, who will say in the middle of a heated discussion, you know what, now that I see it from your perspective, I can see it in a different way. And, and it, that's where it starts. And I, and I think that at this point, the polarization is so strong. The animosity is so intense. The, 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 the sense of not seeing a way out of it is, is so deep that I think that people are ripe at least to try to learn new skills or to be in an environment where it could be a way where without any need for like, we have to solve this problem today to first um, build the internal structure and, and, and then build um, inter, uh, in relationships, build that structure. What do you think? Think of it as a, you know, a multi, almost a multi-prong approach. On the one hand, we have to do that, what you're talking about, Joe, with this internal um, reflection and figuring out how to regulate ourselves. At the same time, we need to interpersonal relationships that are with people vastly different from ourselves. And at the same time, to your point earlier point, David, we also need then to reimagine our institutions to reward the behavior we wanna see and not the, the performative nature um, of zero sum politics. You know, That's gonna get us, I think, farther than anything else. So thank you for letting me jump in there, uh, David, on top of you. No, it's good. I mean, I think it's thank you, definitely value added. Um, you know, and I think Joe, I feel like as, as I've spent so long in politics, you've probably heard this before, is sometimes the pain of not going to the dentist has to get greater than the pain of going to the dentist. And I hope we're reaching that point, uh, that, that the pain of us just continuing down this path is 
getting so bad. It's getting so dysfunctional. We're so dissatisfied with the direction of the country right now that it's going to cause more and more people to stop and look for another option. I know that sentiment is growing and it's greater today than it's been in a hundred years. And I'm very encouraged and hopeful about that. But I still sometimes feel like I've gone out, you know, 10 feet off the shore in Hawaii and tried to push the waves back um, because they just keep coming and they're immense. Um, but I know that I'm not alone and the three of us are not alone. And that encourages me. Um, but I also feel overwhelmed uh, in the work as well. I can imagine, yeah. That, yes, it's, it's overwhelming, it's a lot. I'd like to, um, I would like to offer something that uh, I haven't really thought this out too much, but I'd like your perspective. And around, around the issue of guns and around this idea of finding alliances in surprising places. And I think because we're in this state of dysregulation, because we're so locked into uh, the, the three internal polarizations that, are, that, that are not allowing us to solve our external polarizations, the first one being, I'm all good, and therefore, if you oppose me, you must be all bad. I'm right, and if you oppose me, then you must be wrong, and I need to win, and if you don't win, then you're a loser. I'm going to make sure you're a loser, and that has locked us into patterns that we can't even see what's in front of our faces in terms of possible solutions. And I was just wondering what you think in terms of this gun issue and, and finding alliances in surprising places. If you go back to the Uvalde um, incident where um, there were over a hundred or dozens of uh, law enforcement agents who would not go into that room. And because we're in a dysregulated state, we immediately go to good guy, bad guy, and, and all right or wrong and all of that and not stop and think about, at least I did, I stopped and thought about, these men are just basically saying, if I go in there, I'm gonna die. There's just, there's just no, and do I want to do that? And I thought at that moment, there was suddenly a new alliance for people who want gun reform, is to, is to approach law enforcement. And who are the ones that are really in danger? Mm. Yes, children are really at a threat in the United States of America. But law enforcement, mm. they're, they're the ones who have to literally stand face to face with AR-15s and these assault rifles. And I'm not saying we, we should have them or not have them. I'm simply saying, again, that's an issue of how do you have a discussion around that where we can't at the moment, right? That it's either, you know, I have my rights, it's all this or all that. But what do you think about this idea that maybe law enforcement for people who are interested in gun reform could be a really strong alliance? I think they could be a great place, um, but still also just the idea and institution of law enforcement is a really uh, tough trigger for a lot of folks too, for, for uh, generations of uh, impact, negative impact. And that could be one, um, there's a, a leader here in Nashville. Nashville's a big healthcare hub. A lot of hospitals founded here and gone across the country like HCA and such. Um, the the uh, doc, There's, there's a, a group really calling for what can doctors say about this? Because many doctors, especially ER docs, they're the ones who are on sometimes a nightly or weekly basis receiving gunshot wound victims over and over again and, and sharing you know, what is our role from a medical perspective, from a 
healthcare, mental health perspective, you know, I think, you know, some folks like that could be some of those conveners that uh, could, could have a, a valuable perspective and, and, you know, seen as maybe not necessarily part of the partisan machine of the whole discussion. That's, that is like a brilliant idea, David. And um, thank you, Joe, for kind of offering, because I'm, I'm all of a sudden seeing visions in my head of like law enforcement, healthcare providers, um, you know, school officials, et cetera, kind of all converging. Yes. These are all outside of the, the political frame of uh, Second Amendment rights or, or gun control, just coming together to say, let's have a, a safer community, <laughs> you know, for our kids. Yes. <laughs> right. And, and young adults in the communities. Right. As well. Right. That's a vision I've had with the fierce, with fierce civility, with the trainings is to train law enforcement and also train young people in the communities to go back and be ambassadors and to have this vision of a young person from the community community co-facilitating with someone in law enforcement, giving an example of shared leadership. So it's another aspect that could come into that. I love that. Well, I know we could go on for probably another three hours um, between us in talking about this, but we actually need to kind of wrap for the podcast. David, any last words from you? And then Joe, I'm going to give you the final word before we wrap. Yeah, I think one of the things that Joe said earlier that really resonates a lot is, is our heart posture. I used to be you know, in part of that partisan battle where I saw it as kind of good versus evil and right versus wrong and superior and inferior. And these days, I really don't care if you call yourself a Republican or Democrat or independent or libertarian. What the, the, the label really doesn't matter to me anymore. What, I, what I'm looking for is people whose hearts are open. And I think when you have someone who has an open heart, there is nothing you can't accomplish. You know, if, if I might be an R and they may be a D, but we both are open hearted and open minded and we can come together. That's just a great point. And so I, th that's the place that uh, I'm really encouraged about and excited about, because that to me is the path forward is, is people who are approaching these challenges from a journalistic standpoint, from a legislative standpoint, from a business standpoint, from a political, whatever that may look like with an open heart. And uh, I think we see the effects of closed heartedness on uh, this conversation. So just appreciate Joe bringing that up and your work in that space that this is heart work. Thank Thanks, you, David. David. Yeah, wow, beautiful. You're speaking my language. You're speaking our language, I think. <laughs> I will, I will, if, may I, may I, Please. I'll, I'll, I'll add to that, that uh, for me, and I, and I say this specifically in the book, being in your heart is not a Hallmark Cardi sentimental thing. It requires skill and strategy and courage and wisdom and that we can cultivate and that more of us, uh, I think, are ready to cultivate that. And that, um, and I would just say that um, one thing to consider is who's telling your story? Um, that's that's one thing I would offer is who's telling your story and to do an evaluation is it is it you know have is it is it your, your parents your religious institutions your governments the media the media is telling a really profitable story and how much of it are we buying into and I think the first step is who's telling your story and then to ask well what is my story and my request or hope is that you make it a story of fierce hope um, and that um, 
you realize that we can break through at least the the, pol the the one polarization that we're very stuck in is love either love thy loved ones or love thy enemy and open to love thy stranger. There's almost 8 billion strangers you can be engaging with that you can learn from, that you can ally with, that you can support, that can heal you, that you can heal them. And that's our way out of this. Well, thank you, Joe Weston, author of Fierce Civility, and our guest, uh, David Leverton, resident of Tennessee, uh, working in education there. And it uh, sounds like we have some work to do, guys. We do. And uh, I'm Debbie Lynn Molyneux, co-publisher of The Fulcrum, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks.